The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone is doing great today, as always. There's not a lot going on over here at the home front, except that Willie G., you know, my son, who's uh, quickly approaching nine weeks, ladies and gentlemen, he's doing a lot of tummy time. So he's been on his tummy. He's lifting up his head. He's turning it around. He's giggling and smiling now. It's fantastic. Really magical to watch. He's like a little human caterpillar. And he's uh, moving his head around now, full motion. He's starting to kick his feet a little, kind of sort of doing a waddle crawl. It's really cr- uh, cute, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, that's happening. I cooked up some amazing uh, ribs last night. I did a sherry wine barbecue sauce and cooked these country-style ribs in my cast-iron Dutch oven. And I used the sherry that was made by my father-in-law and snuck over here from Poland by my mother-in-law who's here visiting. So we made those last night fantastic. They were excellent. And the day before that, folks, I did pork belly. I cooked that in the oven, uh, skin-on pork belly, cooked in the oven for several hours, and then uh, chopped it up, like sliced it up, fried it in a pan, and I made an Asian cucumber salad and some bean sprouts. Dynamite, ladies and gentlemen. I love cooking. If this was another life, I'd probably be a a cook somewhere, Uh, maybe in McDonald's flipping burgers or something, soon to be replaced by artificial intelligence robots. No, no, I can never be a cook. I give those guys a lot of credit. It is difficult cooking for a lot of people, folks. Very difficult doing it in a restaurant versus doing it at home for four or five people. So anyway, what we're going to do tonight, folks, is we're going to jump right into industrial society and its future this 1995 paper that we've been covering on and off in between guest shows and we have many more guest shows planned for you i've gone over some of the guests so i don't want to do that again tonight but this 1995 paper is very important it was written by someone i have not mentioned them by name yet we're going to eventually talk about this person and the official narrative story uh, as it relates to this person. But I don't want to do that until we finish, because I think you're going to learn a lot from this paper, and I don't want to taint it. As I have mentioned on other shows, I'm not sure if the official narrative surrounding this author is accurate or not all right i was in high school when this was written and it came out it was attached to a big news story it was ongoing at the time back in 95 
there weren't that many channels really for news so if something was in the news pretty much everyone across the country had heard about it it would be in the local newspaper uh maybe the closest uh city newspaper to you would be all over state news and then uh, national news and so it was pretty much uh this person was a household name and this paper was published in uh, several newspapers around the country and we'll get into why that happened. And so, as I've said, I'm, I'm not sure if this person was a prophet and actually predicted the situation that we find ourselves in today, if it was some sort of a mind-controlled messenger, um, which we know can exist. We've seen some of the Frankenstein doctors out of the military talking about the ability to mind-control people and to turn them into agents of the system. Or if the person themselves was just some sort of patsy and this was published in their name for the purpose of the elites revealing their methods. Uh, and as we go deeper into this document, you're going to see that uh, it really, really did predict exactly the situation that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, we are up to paragraph 77. So we're entering a new section now called How Some People Adjust. And I'm not going to go uh, backwards and explain everything that we've discussed already. You're just going to have to listen to the past episodes because if I keep going back, and summarizing what we've already discussed, and we're just not going to get this done. And I need to get through this document so that I could do a couple of shows on the author and how this document came to be. And then we're going to get into this Federal Reserve book by Anthony Sutton that Wide Awake Jim recommended that we review here at the show because he said it is instrumental in understanding the system that we find ourselves in right now. So yesterday, I'll just say, we talked about cutting the leash, all right, and as this author uh, points out that we are on a leash, and the leash is controlled by the system itself. He talks about it as an industrial technological society, otherwise known as a technocracy, which we've reviewed in detail here across many, many episodes. We've gone into the technocracy blueprints, the founding documents coming out of uh, 1919 to really 1940, 45, and uh, Howard Scott, who was the founder of Technocracy Incorporated, a lot of his speeches. I have, a, I have hundreds of pages of documents that I haven't gone through yet on the show. We're going to eventually go through some of the interviews with Howard Scott, and we're really going to tie Howard Scott into Frank Vanderlip, who was instrumental in creating the Federal Reserve. And I'm going to show you that the uh, bankers, the central banksters, the economic terrorists, the economic hitmen, these guys were actually behind Technocracy in its founding, and they're behind the technocracy that we see today, all the stuff we've been reviewing with Wide Awake Jim, present-day technocracy, the fake climate change hustle grift growing out of Bank for International Settlements, International Monetary Fund, United Nations, World Economic Forum, etc., etc. That's all technocracy, and that's all being driven 
by the bankers at the highest levels, the Bank for International Settlements and those that are behind them. And as Jim has pointed out, BIS, Bank for International Settlements, is owned by all the central banks, and that we can't really see exactly who owns the central banks, like who owns the Federal Reserve. So we have all these bankers behind the big system, and then the system drives uh, these grifts, uh, these made-up illusions, live-action role plays, and then everyone gets in line with them, and eventually it leads us into central bank digital currency, which is really the uh, mother load for technocracy. All right, so let's start with this. How some people adjust. Paragraph 77. Not everyone in industrial technological society, a.k.a. technocracy, suffers from psychological problems. Some people even profess to be quite satisfied with society as it is. We now discuss some of the reasons why people differ so greatly in their response to modern society. Again, written in 95, 28 years ago, he's calling that modern society. It's only gotten worse. But this is what I've talked about with you folks. That we can't keep beating ourselves over the head and banging our heads against the wall, thinking that we are going to change the minds and the hearts of the collective. Uh, We aren't going to restore America to some sort of a constitutional republic when that system is really a bit of a fiction anyway. If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to Legal Man over at the podcast, The Quash. All right. But even if... Even if there was some utopian constitutional republic that once existed, if there are half the people, I believe it's more than half, that are fine with living within a technocratic slave state, right? They're okay with Big Brother telling them what to do, breathing down their necks. Then how are we supposed to force those people into another system? Now, we can sit here and say they forced us into this system. All right. We're talking about the elites. We're talking about the bankers. We're talking about the technocrats. We're talking about the transhumanists, the scientists, the engineers, the technologists, the business guys, the investors. They forced us into this system, utilizing the bureaucracy and the political puppets, the actors, the politicians, the so-called elected representatives. And they forced us into this system. They coerced us into this system. But the truth is, many of us went along with it. It's just we didn't realize what it was, except for maybe the last few years. A lot of people started waking up during COVID land, the high school theater production, realizing how tyrannical this system is and how dystopian the future is when you look at all the technology they are rolling out in order to enslave us and eventually engineer humanity out of existence using transhumanism and Frankenstein experiments and such, right? But so many of these folks are totally happy with this. You saw it during COVID land, the high school theater production. Many people lined up and got the jab and the booster. Many people took every single drug that the government or the puppets, the propagandists, the television media guys, uh, influencers, and so-called independent media told them to take. Many people put on a mask. In fact, many put on three. I mean, these people willingly stepped into this system, 
right? And we get dragged along. As Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Friday, says, these folks are the anchors. And the anchors weigh us all down. They drag us down. Because if they're willing to go along with the system, if they believe in it, if they love it, if they worship it, if they love to be kicked around like a slave, then all of a sudden they drag us down into the system. Wide Awake Jim covered some of this on the last few shows through the Bank for International Settlements documents that he reviewed and analyzed and highlighted for us, showing that the bankers say, when it comes to the climate change hustle, that if they can get, let's say, 50% of people to actually believe it and then they can get let's say another 30 or 40 percent who don't necessarily believe it but they're just going to bend over they're just going to comply with it then that's a win for them as well and then you're going to have 10 percent that are the outliers maybe people like me and you who wouldn't get vaxxed wouldn't get boosted we're not going to walk on the dotted lines in the grocery store we're not going to stand in the target circles and and make sure that we're behind the plexiglass and stay six feet away from people and put on a hazmat suit and wear a welding shield over our face maybe we're not going to do it we don't want to play live action role play we're not in the mood to dress up like some furry teddy bear or something and pretend that this is all normal you know, we are the ones who cause trouble for them, and we are the ones they have to drive further into the system. Just like they're talking about the people that are unbanked in this country and around the world. They don't like that because they want everyone under the system of technocracy. But what I'm saying is, right, the folks that want to live in this system that they're building, I believe there's more of them than there are of us at this point, sadly, right? So they're going to continue to live in the system they're going to continue to build the system we have the ability though to step outside the system stop believing that you have shackles on you that are chaining you to some sort of a cinder block holding you inside the system first you have to free your mind you have to free your heart you have to free your spirit and your soul in order to have the courage to step outside of the system You will feel strange because most of the people around you are not going to do it. But if you know something's wrong, if you're like Neo in the Matrix, if you know deep inside you that there is something wrong with the system, and now you've been listening to my show and other people like my show, and you know that this is what it is, this is technocracy all around you, then do what you need to do to further understand it, and then do what you need to do to have the courage to step outside of it and be prepared to live outside of it, okay? It's very difficult to live outside of it if you're not prepared to do so. All right, paragraph 78. First, there doubtless are differences in the strength of the drive for power. Individuals with a weak drive for power may have relatively little need to go through the power process. Uh, And you definitely want to listen to the past shows because power process is key to all of this. Uh, Essentially, what it means is humans are wired to have a goal, have to work extremely hard to achieve the goal, and then have to achieve their goals more often than, than, than they fail. Okay, otherwise you're going to end up in depression. So it says little need to go through the power process or at least relatively little need for autonomy in the power process. These are docile types who would have been happiest plantation darkies in the old south. 
We don't mean to sneer at the plantation darkies of the Old South. To their credit, most of the slaves were not content with their servitude. We do sneer at people who are content with servitude. You see what the author is saying there? All right. He's not talking crap about the uh, folks that were locked up as slaves because he believes the majority of them didn't want to be. But the ones who are content with servitude, are content with slavery, are content with being pushed around by the government and shoved into the cattle car line to get their jabs and boosters, the author is saying he does not really have any patience for those type of folks. As Maria Albanese would say, those folks are the anchors that drag us all down. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to drag myself down to a quick commercial break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, we are returning to Industrial Society and its future, written in 19. 19- 95. Let's move on to paragraph 79. It says some people may have some exceptional drive in pursuing which they satisfy their need for the power process. For example, those who have an unusually strong drive for social status may spend their whole lives climbing the status ladder without ever getting bored with that game. You know those types, folks. The people that try to copy the Kardashians, you know, they want to keep moving up that social ladder. Those could be socialites, those could be elected politician types, those could be actors, you know, those type of people. Paragraph 80, people vary in their susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. Some are so susceptible that even if they make a great deal of money, They cannot satisfy their constant craving for the shiny new toys that the marketing industry dangles before their eyes. So they always feel hard-pressed financially, even if their income is large and their cravings are frustrated. You know those folks, right? They're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. They want everything, the new boat, the new ATV, the new truck, the new TV, the new video gaming system. They just want more and more stuff, all right? They're trapped in the cycle of materialism and consumerism. I'm not um, judging anyone. I mean, I I think we're all individuals. As I've said here on the show since the very beginning, we are going to have different goals, uh, different solutions to try to reach those goals because we're individual. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us truly about freedom and liberty over here at the Dust and Gold Standard. I know there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone. If there was, we would all uh, build an Amish community and get the hell out of here. But not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone wants to do that. So people that want to chase the materialistic, you know, consumerism and all these new toys and shiny objects, if that's your thing, that's your thing. I mean, I'm, I'm not judging you for that. 
I don't think everyone has to go out and live in the woods, you know, like some uh, indigenous uh, Native American or something like that. I mean, I know that's not for everyone. All right, let's continue. Paragraph 81. Some people have low susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. These are the people who aren't interested in money. Material acquisition does not serve their need for the power process. Now, I figured out, ladies and gentlemen, with myself, uh, that's the type of person I am. When I first read this uh, many years ago, I was not as educated to all these subjects as I am now. But I figured out throughout my life, um, much of it spent single, I was happy working on creative projects. And as long as my bills were paid and there were certain times I made a lot of money and I was into going out and you know partying and stuff like that, I would make a lot of money in the corporate entertainment comedy business, and I would take people out to eat and eat fancy food and drink. I mean, that, that's what I was into, so I was working to be able to do that, but I wasn't into buying uh, BMWs and fancy cars, so I never chased uh, money, per se. Uh, I had opportunities when I was in politics in my 20s to go work for some Washington, D.C. think tank types, and I could have made a lot of money, and I didn't do it. It just didn't interest me. They couldn't, I I knew I would end up in this corrupt system. I was well aware of the corrupt system, and I didn't want to do that. So the money didn't lure me in. And then as a creative, uh, and running my sort of creative consulting business over the years, working in graphics and web development and such, there's been a lot of projects that I could have worked on, contracts that would have been six months or a year, and they just didn't interest me. So even though the money would have been really great, I wasn't going to be happy with it because I was never into buying all kinds of crazy stuff. Now my main objective is uh, to get this piece of land in West Virginia and own it outright because once I do that, my money's really going to just go into the farming and the, the ranching stuff and then the ability to travel around the country doing this show and bringing Willie G on a homeschool tour. That's basically what I want to do. So that's what I'm earning money for now, but it's not to buy, a, I don't want an RV just because it's luxurious. I want one that I can bring my son around the country and introduce him to a lot of different people, you know, like Justin, the cowboy. I want to bring him out to a Mark to learn how to butcher. You know, there's a lot of folks I want him to meet along the trail, but it's not to own a, a shiny objects, you know, so it's, that's just who I am. I don't know what type of person you are. It probably would be of a benefit for you to figure out, you know, who you are, what drives you, and that's going to help you shape more realistic goals for the future. All right, paragraph 82, people who have medium susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques are able to earn enough money to satisfy their craving for goods and services, but only at the cost of serious effort, putting in overtime, taking a second job, earning promotions, etc., Thus, material acquisition serves their need for the power process. See, because they're working hard to achieve those goals in order to have more money to buy more things. But it does not necessarily follow that their need is fully satisfied. They may have insufficient autonomy in the power process. Their work may consist of following orders, and some of their drives may be frustrated. For example, security aggression. 
We are guilty of oversimplification in paragraphs 80 to 82 because we have assumed that the desire for material acquisition is entirely a creation of the advertising and marketing industry. Of course, it's not that simple. All right, that's just the author uh, making that statement to clarify. Okay, so on one hand, you could believe that advertising and marketing really uh, plays up and sucks people into the materialistic, consumeristic society, but he's saying obviously that's not the case 100% of the time. All right, paragraph 83, some people partly satisfy their need for the power by identifying themselves with a powerful organization or mass movement. An individual lacking goals or power joins a movement or an organization, adopts its goals as his own, then works toward those goals. When some of the goals are attained, the individual, even though his personal efforts have played only an insignificant part in the attainment of the goals, feels through his identification with the movement or organization as if he had gone through the power process. All right, do you understand that? So what it's saying is someone joins a group and the group has successes. That person could have been one member of, uh, I don't know, 10,000 people. And he looks at their successes as his successes. You know, a lot of those people, maybe you guys are, do that with sports teams. You know, you sit on the couch and I don't know, the Yankees hit a home run. You say, my team hit a home run. My team won, even though it's not your team, but you're part of that group. Uh, In a lot of cases... The sports takes the place of uh, like the fulfillment with the power process because maybe you know at your job you have no autonomy, you get uh, no payoff from it that goes towards the power process. It goes on to say this phenomenon was exploited by the fascist Nazis and communists. Our society uses it too, though less uh, crudely. Example, Manuel Noriega was an irritant to the United States. The goal, punish Noriega. The United States invaded Panama, which is the effort, and punished Noriega, which was the attainment of the goal. Thus, the United States went through the power process, and many Americans, because of their identification with the U.S., experienced the power process vicariously, right? So these will be the folks that sit around and cheer on politics on television, red versus blue, WWE wrestling. To me, uh, politics in its current form is no different Okay, then watching a reality show, then watching the Kardashians or watching sports or watching wrestling. You know, you cheer on the red, you cheer on the blue. In this particular case, these are the type of uh, incidents that occur like, say, 9-11 or COVID land, the high school theater production, or we're going after Russia, or we're going to go after China. This is when they get the whole country to actually come together as Americans and cheer on something that the government wants to do. And there's a whole bunch we could talk about there with Noriega. I'm not going to get into that, but it's interesting because George H.W. Bush uh, propped him up and then tore him down. Just another one of these dictators that we install and then they give us lip and we've got to go tear them down. Uh, It goes on to say, hence the widespread public approval of the Panama invasion. It gave people a sense of power.
We see the same phenomenon in armies, corporations, political parties, humanitarian organizations, religious or ideological movements. In particular, leftist movements tend to attract people who are seeking to satisfy their need for power. But for most people, identification with a large organization or a mass movement does not fully satisfy the need for power. All right, and so when he's talking about leftist movements, think about it in the sense of a Black Lives Matter or an Antifa, right? And there's paid organizers, uh, agitators that are in there. They work for political organizations, NGOs, think tanks, I don't undercover government agents, right? And so the whole thing is orchestrated, but they end up getting real people onto the streets, you know, kids from college, high school dropouts, drug addicts, whatever it may be. Some are paid, you know, but some actually get drawn into it. They think they're fighting fascists i actually know people in my real life that were part of some of this stuff and they they actually went out in the street they think they're fighting fascists uh when they don't even realize they are actually the fascist but i think you understand what the author is talking about paragraph 84 Another way in which people satisfy their need for the power process is through surrogate activities. We talked about surrogate activities on past shows. As we explained in paragraphs 38 to 40, a surrogate activity is an activity that is directed toward an artificial goal that the individual pursues for the sake of the, quote, fulfillment, end quote, that he gets from pursuing the goal, not because he needs to attain the goal itself, okay? So these would be, for instance, hobbies, okay? For instance, there is no practical motive for building enormous muscles, hitting a little ball into a hole, or acquiring a complete series of postage stamps. <laughs> Yet many people in our society devote themselves with passion to bodybuilding, golf, or stamp collecting. Some people are more, quote, other directed, end quote, than others, and therefore will more readily attach importance to a surrogate activity simply because the people around them treat it as important or because society tells them it is important. This is why some people get very serious about essentially trivial activities such as sports or bridge or chess or uh, arcane scholarly pursuits, whereas others who are more clear-sighted never see these things as anything but the surrogate activities that they are, and consequently never attach enough importance to them to satisfy their need for the power process in that way. That's how I am, folks, all right? I played sports in high school. I played basketball. I ran track. I played volleyball. Throughout my life, I played baseball. I played soccer. Uh, Never really played uh, football, but I never really got into watching sports. It wasn't my thing. And and I watch people. They enjoy it. That's your thing. That's your thing. I never was like that. Uh, Never got into golf. Never got into a lot of these, uh, what they would call surrogate activities. Not because I had read this, but I guess I have whatever the author is talking about. I just, those things don't um, actually do anything for me. I don't feel like I'm actually accomplishing anything uh, by them. goes on to say, it only remains to point out that in many cases, a person's way of earning a living is also a surrogate activity. Not a pure surrogate activity, since part of the motive for the activity is to gain the physical necessities and, for some people, social status and the luxuries that advertising makes them want. 
But many people put into their work far more effort than is necessary to earn whatever money and status they require, and this extra effort constitutes a surrogate activity. Okay, because you got to remember, the author is always referring back to primitive man. Uh, I mean, we're talking only going back 200 years ago, you know, to leave your cabin, go out in the woods, hunt an elk, kill it, bring it back home and feed your family. So now in in modern time, back in 90, 1995, what he's talking about, or even today, you go to work, at least back then you had to leave and go to an office. Now you could just jump on Zoom in most cases if you work remotely, but you're there to trade your skills, your creativity, your efforts, whatever it may be, your labor. Uh, for food coupons so you can go to the grocery store which is the equivalent of modern day hunting so you get the money to get the food to pay your rent uh, or to pay your mortgage or whatever that may be Uh, it says this extra effort together with the emotional investment that accompanies it is one of the most potent forces acting towards the continual development and perfecting of the system with negative consequences for individual freedom Especially for the most creative scientists and engineers, work tends to be largely a surrogate activity. This point is so important that it deserves a separate discussion, which we will give it in a moment. Paragraphs 87 to 92. Very important there. All right, so he's talking about these professions in which people work above and beyond uh their call of duty right what they actually need to earn the food coupons to get the food and pay their rent and he's talked specifically about scientists and engineers uh working above and beyond and it flows into what's called this surrogate activity and this is very important and i hope i can do it justice folks Uh, Because this is what we're talking about today. The scientists and engineers that are building the technocratic system, that have built the technocratic system. And I told you, they will work and they will continue until all of humanity is enslaved. The entire natural world has been hijacked and controlled by them. And they will eventually engineer humanity out of existence. We'll explain when we get back from this short commercial break ladies and gentlemen my name is dustin gold of the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard On pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. And we are reviewing industrial society and its future. This paper written in 1995. And it explains a lot in regards to what is going on right now, today, in the present. And this will continue to be relevant going into the future. I try to keep most of my shows evergreen so you can go back and listen to them at any time you want. Let's go uh, into paragraph 85. It says, in this section, we have explained how many people in modern society do satisfy their need for the power process to a greater or lesser extent. 
But we think that for the majority of people, the need for the power process is not fully satisfied. In the first place, those who have an insatiable drive for status or who get firmly hooked on a surrogate activity or who identify strongly enough with a movement or organization to satisfy their need for power in that way are exceptional personalities. Others are not fully satisfied with surrogate activities or by identification with an organization. In the second place, too much control is imposed by the system through explicit regulation or through socialization, which results in a deficiency of autonomy and in frustration due to the impossibility of attaining certain goals and the necessity of restraining too many impulses. So what the author is talking about there, folks, Uh, Look at this. It says, in the second place, too much control is imposed by the system through explicit regulation or through socialization. And really what he's talking about is, is what we've been discussing here, okay? The regulation, the policies, the rules, the laws, all this tyranny really keep us strapped down to this system, okay? And then through the socialization, which is really the social engineering, As we've talked about many times, technocracy, in part, is the science of social engineering. So they are engineering you into this society, this culture of technocracy. As I've I've explained several times, technocracy is a culture, and it's already here. And as he says, as the author says, this results in deficiency of autonomy, meaning that you aren't really going out and making your own choices, You are doing things in order to continue to conform to the system, which is why I said if if you don't want to live within the system, you need to cut your leash, all right? You need to unleash yourself from the system and stop trying to live within the boundaries, the guidelines, the rules of this system. Maybe you need to look in the mirror and say to yourself, "Is, is this really the system that I want to live in? Is this really what I want to do. I mean, where did this idea get installed in my head that I have to work, save money for my kids' college education and send them off to college and then continue to work, pay off my house, sell my house, retire to Disney World and play golf. I mean, where, where did that all come from? Why, why were so many people chasing that same goal? Because it was implanted in your head. You were socially engineered into wanting those things. I mean, maybe you really do. Maybe, maybe that is your goal. If that is, then stick with it. If it's not and you feel something is wrong, figure out why and start to figure out how the hell you're going to get yourself out of this system. Paragraph 86. But even if most people in industrial technological society were well satisfied, we, and this is FC, we'll get into this later, we would still be opposed to that form of society. Because, among other reasons, we consider it demeaning to fulfill one's need for the power process through surrogate activities or through identification with an organization rather than through pursuit of real goals. Now, this is the author speaking here about the industrial technological society, which is technocracy. That's just synonymous with technocracy. And, And he's talking about we, his organization, is opposed to this form of society 
And he's saying because they find it to be demeaning uh, that one needs to fulfill their power process through these surrogate activities or through identification with a sports team. All right. Now, I think it's important that we try to educate people on this, on the psychology of why we are where we are. But I don't believe that it is our right to actually drag them out of the system. Again, if they find themselves okay with the system, then that's the way it's going to be. We have to move ourselves out of the system. And, and I know it's difficult because I've gone through this, uh, especially over the last uh, year as I've thought through this how I'm going to move myself out of the system. And we're so locked into this idea that we have to continue to work hard. We have to spend more hours. We have to work two jobs. We have to have a side hustle in order to keep getting cash uh, and keep getting cash and more cash and more cash. But what are we doing with that cash? What's the purpose of having the cash? For me, if I can have enough cash to own this piece of land outright, then the majority of my time is going to go into farming that land and producing my food and doing things to upkeep with the property. I don't need as much cash anymore. I don't need to build a retirement portfolio worth $49 million. Who even knows if that's going to be there when we get there with central bank digital currency coming, their ability to stop you from building wealth. Who knows what's going to happen with that? Maybe with inflation, they just basically destroy all of the savings that you work so hard to get now once you have the land and once you have enough revenue coming in that you can invest the money back into the land you know to grow your vegetables to uh breed cattle whatever it may be you need less cash so are your hours more valuable being spent to earn cash uh, which you would use to buy materialistic things, or your hours better off spent tending your land. I, it just depends on the way you want to live. I'm just offering up some goals, some solutions of mine. And if you really want to escape this technocratic system or this industrial technological society, as the author puts it, there's really only so many ways you can go about doing it. All right, this next section is the motives of scientists. This is going to be very important. Paragraph 87, science and technology provide the most important examples of surrogate activities. Some scientists claim that they are motivated by curiosity or by a desire to benefit humanity. Have we not heard this over and over as we have been reviewing the modern technocrats and the modern-day transhumanists. It's all to benefit humanity, right? All to benefit humanity. This is why they run Frankenstein experiments. They hack DNA. They do gene splicing. They put computer chips inside people's heads. All to benefit humanity. If not, it's about curiosity. Well, I'd like to know what would happen if we jammed an electrode inside someone's brain. Really? Why the hell are you doing that? Well... I'm curious. (laughs) I mean, think about it, folks. Goes on to say, but it is easy to see that neither of these can be the principal motive of most scientists. As for curiosity, that notion is simply absurd. Most scientists work on highly specialized problems that are not the object of any normal curiosity. For example, is an astronomer a mathematician? or an 
entomologist curious about the properties of isopropyl thiamylomethylene? I can't even pronounce that, ladies and gentlemen. Of course not. Only a chemist is curious about such a thing, and he is curious about it only because chemistry is his surrogate activity. Is the chemist curious about the appropriate classification of a new species of beetle? No. The question is of interest only to entomologist, and he is interested in it only because entomology is his surrogate activity. If the chemist and the entomologist had to exert themselves seriously to obtain the physical necessities meaning if they had to go out and hunt an elk and bring it home to their wife and children, and if that effort exercised their abilities in an interesting way, but in some non-scientific pursuit, then they wouldn't give a damn about isopropylothamethylene, I can't even pronounce it, folks, or the classification of beetles. Suppose that lack of funds or postgraduate education had led the chemist to become an insurance broker instead of a chemist. In that case, he would have been very interested in insurance matters, but would have cared nothing about isopropylothamethylene. I can't even pronounce it again. In any case, it is not normal. To put into the satisfaction of mere curiosity the amount of time and effort that scientists put into their work. The curiosity explanation for the scientist motive just doesn't stand up. Now, we're, we're going to continue to go through this, but I, I want to point this out. I've thought about this stuff long and hard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you took someone like, let, let's just take one of the modern day puppet uh marvel supervillains you know bill gates well if bill gates was stuck living out on a teepee in the middle of uh, the woods somewhere and he had to go out and hunt and bring food back to his ex-wife melinda uh he would not have orchestrated a covid land the high school theater production nor would he be meddling in the affairs of african health nor would he be funding mrna research or palling around with jeffrey epstein or doing any of these things were to believe that he is actually in control of and that's all questionable he's really just a puppet in my eyes no he'd be worried about getting eaten by a bear and a beta male like bill gates would probably have been eaten by a bear and then we wouldn't have all the problems that we have today so i've thought about this in great detail i've dreamt about this stuff all right sometimes i ask myself are the scientists and the engineers really evil or do they really believe that they are helping humanity or they're really driven by the illusion of curiosity and therefore this is why they have built this technocracy we live in this is why they continue to work on frankenstein transhumanist experiments you know and then we ended up in this because we moved ourselves so far away from what we're wired to actually do to actually achieving the the goals that you need to be to actually fulfill the true power process i'm not sure uh it's one of those questions where you look off into the sky and you ask yourself how far the universe goes and you can sit there 
and just keep staring and you could never come up with an answer? Well, this is a similar type of question. You know, is this being orchestrated on purpose or is a lot of this driven by the lack of the fulfillment of the true power process? I'll let you think on that, folks. Stare off into space and think about that question. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain. TV slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold. And we are reviewing Industrial Society and its future, a paper written in 1995. Folks, I ask myself this question sometimes. Am I sitting here doing this show because I am trying to fulfill the uh, power process that I need. So getting a show done, getting it edited, putting it up makes me fulfill that power process. No, I'm actually doing the show because I'm building this basis for homeschool teaching for my son, uh, Willie G. I don't think I would have done the show if my wife wasn't pregnant. I probably would not have taken Mike Moore up on the offer because I just was not in the mood to sit in front of a mic and talk about all these things I've read over the years and try to make sense of them all. But I'm trying to build a homeschool uh, course for Willie G. At the same time, I'm trying to uh, monetize this and turn it into money. And I've, as I said, I've worked in the creative field for you know 20 years. I've worked for myself. And so if you end up with a fairly successful podcast without selling out, which is very difficult to do, if you're not being funded by a sugar daddy or fake uh, companies with fake promo codes, it's very difficult to accomplish. But if you do, like Mike Moore uh, cracked the code for quite a while. If you figure it out, you can make... A decent amount of money fairly quickly, uh, more than you can selling your hours for dollars. All right, then I can get that piece of land faster. And then I can actually go out and live in nature on a piece of land that I'm not squatting on, but I actually own. And then I'll be able to spend my days fulfilling the real power process with my son, Willie G, in his formative years. That, that's what I'm really working towards. That's my goal. I mean, I really have this well thought out. I've looked at all different angles of how to get there as quickly as possible. Now, if I started on this venture 20 years ago, you know, in my early 20s, I would have been there a lot quicker. But I wasn't aware of all this. I hadn't made those decisions. Uh, in my last marriage where I raised two stepkids, that wasn't on the table. All right, I, I had a, uh, my ex-wife was not really into that type of thing. In fact, uh, she was getting quite frustrated with me even continuing to research this stuff, which is part of what led to the uh, divorce, folks, to be honest with you. But uh, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to set up the ability for me to raise my son in an environment where he could fulfill the power process 
in a real way and straddle the line between the matrix and the natural world. All right, because I don't want to just raise him as a full Amish and then he's not prepared to live inside the system if he's forced to or he chooses to. I really want to raise him like Neo from the Matrix, where he can survive outside of the Matrix in the natural world, even if these guys destroy it, and then he can step into the Matrix and survive inside that system. But almost like James Bond, all right, he's got to be a special uh, agent here. He's got to have the ability to blend in and the ability to protect himself, to understand the system enough that he's able to uh, at least appear that he's complying if that's the type of situation, uh, if he so chooses uh, to live that way. Again, I said he may turn 14, 15, 16. He wants to put a brain chip in his head. You know, I can't stop him. He is an individual as well. He has free will that he can exercise. But I've thought about it. So. I'm not just sitting here wasting time with a surrogate activity. And at the same time, I think it is my duty uh, not to help humanity. I mean, I am on the side of humanity, but I figured if I'm going to record this, I might as well share it with other folks, people that are trying to figure out how to do a similar thing as I am. All right, let's continue. Paragraph 88, the benefit of humanity explanation. There we go, folks. The author's about to criticize me. The benefit of humanity explanation doesn't work any better. Some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most of archaeology or comparative linguistics, for example. Some other areas of science present obviously dangerous possibilities, yet scientists in these areas are just as enthusiastic about their work as those who develop vaccines or study air pollution. Consider the case of Dr. Edward Teller, who had an obvious emotional involvement in promoting nuclear power plants. Did this involvement stem from a desire to benefit humanity? If so, then why didn't Dr. Teller get emotional about other humanitarian causes? If he was such a humanitarian, then why did he help to develop the H-bomb? As with many other scientific achievements, it is very much open to question whether nuclear power plants actually do benefit humanity. Does the cheaper electricity outweigh the accumulating waste and the risk of accidents? Dr. Teller saw only one side of the question. Clearly, his emotional involvement with nuclear power arose not from a desire to benefit humanity, but from a personal fulfillment he got from his work and from seeing it put to practical use. And, and you can look at that through the lens of any of these scientists these Frankenstein doctors that we've reviewed right here on the Dust and Gold Standard, the military doctors running the cyborg soldier programs, uh, folks like Dr. James Giordano or Dr. Charles Morgan that come out of the CIA, come out of the government, and they're running these experiments. People that are doing DNA splicing, DNA hacking, genetically modifying humans, Elon Musk working to put brain chips inside people's heads. I mean, are they really doing this to benefit humanity? You know, I think those folks are driven by their desire to actually hack humanity all right and so this author is writing about this from the perspective or at least the um 
sort of an understanding he's looking at it from the point that these people are not necessarily corrupt they don't have sort of dark motives they're just driven by this uh, psychology that he is breaking this down into but i think when you look at the folks we've uncovered here on the show some of them are driven by uh, their need and desire to actually hack humanity and that may come from uh, lack of power process right so if they were out there actually hunting and gathering and protecting their family they may not have the actual desire to go and hack and destroy humanity and eventually engineer it out of existence paragraph 89 the same is true of scientists generally with possible rare exceptions their motive is neither curiosity nor a desire to benefit humanity but the need to go through the power process there we go to have a goal a scientific problem to solve to make an effort research and to attain the goal solution of the problem science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of the work itself all right and that would make sense right so if they have a goal which is a scientific problem to solve we want to make a human be able to see like a hawk right and then they have to put in the effort which is the research how are we going to do it how are we going to implant hawkeyes in this human and then they want to attain the goal which is the solution to the problem they actually want to be able to do it and make it work they want to see it come to light Uh, paragraph 90 of course it's not that simple other motives do play a role for many scientists money and status for example some scientists may be persons of the type who have an insatiable drive for status that would be like dr anthony fauci and this may provide much of the motivation for their work Uh, his would be status and money Uh, plus he's also most likely evil no doubt the majority of scientists like the majority of the general population are more or less susceptible to advertising and marketing techniques and need money to satisfy their craving for goods and services thus science is not a pure surrogate activity but it is in large part a surrogate activity Paragraph 91, also science and technology constitute a power mass movement, and many scientists gratify their need for power through identification with this mass movement. 92, thus science marches on blindly without regard to the real welfare of the human race or to any other standard, obedient only to the psychological needs of the scientists and of the government of Uh, officials and corporation executives who provide the funds for the research see I i brought this up on the show before right so you have these scientists and these crazy engineers and they're funded by the state you know if they're working out of a university they're funded through government contracts as we can see with many of the frankenstein doctors right if they're working inside uh, corporations or with companies that are funded by people like peter thiel all of these technocratic transhumanists right so the scientists are working for them in order to get the money but they are driven by finding a problem and creating a solution and as i said if you let the scientists and engineers run wild it will lead to the eventual destruction of humanity because they are never happy there is always another problem the scientists themselves actually work within their own problem reaction solution loop they have a problem 
they provoke a reaction from themselves, and then they develop a solution that creates more problems. They are in a problem-reaction-solution loop. It never ends, folks. Uh, We're going to enter a new section here called The Nature of Freedom. Paragraph 93, we are going to argue that industrial technological society, a.k.a. technocracy, cannot be reformed in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrowing the sphere of human freedom. But because freedom is a word that can be interpreted in many ways, we must first make clear what kind of freedom we are concerned with. And this is important, and you may not agree with the author, but I've tried to bring this up on the show in the past. You have to start to define these terms you use. Uh, Legal Man at the Quash, the podcast, the Quash, he talks about a lot of this stuff as Barnum statements, like saying, uh, restore the republic or restore America. What does that really mean? You have to define it. Donald Trump said, make America great again. We are going to make America great and stuff and things and everything again. Believe me, we're going to do it. What does make America great again mean? I've had uh, lengthy conversations with Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays. And as aware of all this stuff that she is, uh, she has a vision in her head of what most people perceive make America great again as. But it was never defined. So it's this illusion, uh, a vision in your head, your idea of what utopia is. You have to start to define these things. So when we talk about freedom or we talk about liberty, what does that really mean? Are we talking about freedom in the sense of the country, the people as a collective, you, you and your family? You, your family, your friends, do you want to take your idea of freedom and try to force that onto everyone else? Uh, Is freedom for someone who identifies, and I don't buy into any of this, folks, but identifies as transgender, the ability to take hormones and uh, mutilate their genitals through plastic surgery? Is that freedom to them? And if I don't allow them to do that, then am I taking away their freedom? This is a very nuanced discussion. And to be honest, there's really no right answers at this point. But these are things I like to think about. So when I talk about wanting freedom, what is true freedom? What does freedom mean to you? What is it that you're trying to achieve? Is freedom being free of the government, of the state? Well, if you're 65 and above and you're getting a social security check from the government, are you willing to truly free yourself from the government? Do you want the federal government to shut down tomorrow? Are you willing to give up the distribution of that Social Security check? You'd look at it as uh, money coming back to you for money that you were forced to pay into the system for your entire working life. Okay, but true freedom to me is no government at all. I myself personally, and I've thought long and hard about this, I would be willing to give up everything. First off, I don't take anything from the government. The government only takes from me on uh, April 15th uh, or forces me to get licenses and forces me to to go through uh, courses and classes for certain things I want to do that I don't think I need to do. I can learn it for free on YouTube. But if you took away the government, that would also mean there would be no roads being built, not in the current sense 
All right, the internet would be gone. That's all run by the government. So if you took away the government, are you willing to live without all the things connected to the government? Because pretty much everything in your life right now is in a way controlled by, manipulated by uh, the government. And so freedom to me is no government. Am I willing to take the risk in my life to lose everything that the government has a hold of because it is this technocracy, this matrix that's all around us? Would I be willing to give all of that up for what I believe is actually true freedom? I'd be willing to roll the dice. I don't know about you, but I'd think about that over this short commercial break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to pain.tv slash gold my name is dustin gold and you are listening to the dustin gold standard ladies and gentlemen over the break i was just thinking for a minute i've done this exercise before i want you to do it as well maybe tonight or tomorrow whenever it is you have time and just sit back on your favorite lounge chair or outside, if you're sitting in a, a patio chair, staring off into your yard or your farm, or your, whatever, wherever it is you may be, wherever you're comfortable, I don't know, laying in bed, just close your eyes and try to visualize yourself living out on 10 acres of wooded land. Maybe you have an acre cleared, you farm there, you've got cattle and stuff. Totally free and clear of the government, the banks. Let's say you just own it outright. That's your homestead. You have the right to defend it, build a fence around it. You could build anything you want. There's no restrictions of government whatsoever. Everything there is yours, and you have all the tools, okay, to be able to farm it and everything you need. Like, you could just snap your fingers and go to that place right now. You're going to lose everything else you have. You won't have an internet. You don't have a phone. uh, You don't have electricity. Just pretend all that's gone, and you're there. Would you really want that? Is that what you want? If you could just snap your fingers and be there, you don't have to continue to work your butt off to get to it. I mean, once you snap your fingers and get to that place, you're going to have a lot of work to do because you're going to wake up and have to farm and you're going to have to graze your cattle. You're going to have to slaughter the uh, pig, you know, for food. You're going to have to cook over a fire. You know, could you really do that? And if not, if not, and that's not what you want, but you want a half Amish version of that you want to have electricity at the house you want to have internet you want to have your phone you want to have I don't know a TV or your computer so you can watch YouTube videos or whatever it may be you want to live um, half in the matrix then you have to ask yourself where do you draw the line what are the things that you think the government the state should be doing How many of these corporations are you going to allow to be in your life, you know, if you're purchasing internet from them or such? See, it's very complex, 
Unfortunately, you could probably spend the rest of your life trying to think about that alone. But when we talk about freedom and we talk about unleashing ourselves from the system, stepping outside of the system, this is why I say for us, at least at my age, 41, living one foot in and one foot out is probably the realistic approach. Because I don't think most people want to go full Amish, nor are they prepared to do that. I'm not trying to direct you one way or the other. And I think if everyone is trying to get out to some homestead they built, each of us would have a different version of that because we're going to want more of the technocracy than others. You know, but it's this balance. And I think when you have these conversations, you start to think about this. I've talked to Wide Awake Jim about it. I've talked to legal man about it. I've talked to others. Uh, How much of the technocracy are you willing to put up with? Or how much of it do you actually want? Um, Those luxuries. And I understand with each piece that I accept, I'm actually giving up a little more of my freedom. Although I perceive it to be freedom or convenience to have those things, I know in the end they are actually uh, the opposite of freedom. Connecting myself up to the internet, I don't look at it as being free. I actually look at it as being trapped further into the matrix. I think it's just interesting to think this way. I don't know many others who actually talk about this kind of stuff, but uh, it fascinates me. Borderlines on philosophy, but if you're trying to build yourself a new life with one foot outside of the system, I think you really need to think through this stuff as you're putting together your goals and your plans for the future. Paragraph 94, uh, and this is the author now, uh, his idea of freedom. By freedom, we mean the opportunity to go through the power process with real goals, not the artificial goals of surrogate activities, and without interference, manipulation, or supervision from anyone, especially from any large organization. Freedom means being in control either as an individual or a member of a small group, of the life and death issues of one's existence. Food, clothing, shelter, and defense against whatever threats there may be in one's environment. Freedom means having power. Not the power to control other people, but the power to control the circumstances of one's own life. One does not have freedom if anyone else, especially a large organization, has power over one. No matter how benevolently, uh, tolerantly, and permissively that power may be exercised, it is important not to confuse freedom with mere permissiveness. All right? That's really important, folks, because this author was able to define freedom through his eyes. Okay, so I think you should do that. It should be an exercise for you. What does freedom mean to you? Start to write this down. How do you define freedom? And there's no right or wrong answer, okay? And no one is judging you. Each person's idea of freedom is going to be different, but this author wrote it down. I think you should do the same. Uh, Paragraph 95, it is said that we live in a free society because we have a certain number of constitutionally guaranteed rights, but these are not as important as they seem. The degree of personal freedom that exists in a society is determined more by the economic and technological structure of the society than by its laws or its form of government. 
Most of the Indian nations of New England were monarchies, and many of the cities of the Italian Renaissance were controlled by dictators. But in reading about these societies, one gets the impression that they allowed for more personal freedom than our society does. In part, this was because they lacked efficient mechanisms for enforcing the ruler's will. There were no modern, well-organized police forces, no rapid long-distance communications, no surveillance cameras, no dossiers of information about the lives of average citizens. Hence, it was relatively easy to evade control. Think about that. So far, that is the most important piece from this document that we have read, I would say. The most important piece. It, it, they're not even talking about the level of tyranny that we see today, 28 years after this was written. But look what the author is talking about. Go back in time to areas that were run by dictators, but they did not have technocracy. They did not have the technological means to actually enforce all of the laws, the regulations, the policies. And now we're entering into a system, central bank digital currency, which will control where you can buy, where you can sell, who you can buy from, who you can sell to, when you can buy how much you can buy, what areas you can go to, where you can travel to, a system of complete and total control. And if you try to evade that system, folks, we we are responsible for having built a, a whole entire technological prison planet around ourselves. Never mind what may or may not have been in the jab and or booster. Who knows? Who knows? I'm just talking about putting on the iWatch, wearing the Fitbit, carrying the phone, carrying the tablet, carrying the computer, having a car with a computer inside of it. I'm talking about all the ring cameras and doorbells and closed caption circuit TVs and smart televisions and uh, smart devices and smart thermostats and smart everything folks we built this internet of things around ourselves connected ourselves up to the internet of bodies we can be controlled we could be told what to do it becomes harder and harder to actually evade the system that's why i said yesterday if you are complaining about tyranny you cannot continue to comply with the tyranny you will not beat tyranny by complying with tyranny. You have to unleash yourself from this system. Unfortunately, they've made it into a society and a culture in which if you want any semblance of freedom, you have to be an outlaw now. Everything you're doing, you're violating a law. Before, it wouldn't matter, but now they can track you everywhere you go. And once central bank digital currency comes into place, it will be very easy to do. The police don't need to show up at your door with guns. They just turn your Uncle Sam digital wallet off, or they take away some of your carbon credit tokens. 
All right. That's what this author is talking about here. Even though you may have lived under a dictatorship 500 years ago, you could violate pretty much all the rules because they didn't have the police force, let alone the technological slave state system that we have today that keeps you within the confines of the digital slave plantation. All right, paragraph 96, as for our constitutional rights, consider, for example, that freedom of the press. We certainly don't mean to knock that, right? It is a very important tool for limiting concentration of political power and for keeping those who do have political power in line by publicly exposing any misbehavior on their part. But freedom of the press is of very little use to the average citizen as an individual. The mass media are mostly under the control of large organizations that are integrated into the system. And we know this. I mean, what was the latest charts that we've seen? All the major corporate media has been concentrated under six companies. I believe it's five now. Uh, But since this was written in 95, we've seen social media. So now everyone believes they have a voice. But you know you don't have a voice Because as soon as you say something that's controversial to the system, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever digital ghetto you live on, they just shut you down. All right. As soon as you say something that may be against the law, you might have the cops knocking on your door because we know all of those social media companies work in conjunction with the state. In fact, they were all funded and started with state money. None of them are truly independent companies. It goes on to say anyone who has a little money can have something printed or can distribute it on the internet or in some such way. But what he has to say will be swamped by the vast volume of materials put out by the media. Hence, it will have no practical effect. So he's putting this in the context back in 95 that you could put something out, but mass media will just destroy it. To make an impression on society with words is therefore almost impossible for most individuals and small groups. Take us, FC, this is uh, his group, for example. If we had never done anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they probably would not have been accepted. If they had been accepted and published, they probably would not have attracted many readers because it's more fun to watch the entertainment put out by the media than to read a sober essay. If FF, these or it should be if, even if these writings had had many readers, most of these readers would soon have forgotten what they had read as their minds were flooded by the mass of material to which the media exposed them. In order to get our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people. All right, that's what the author is saying, okay? They're saying they had to kill people in order to get people to read uh, their message. Now, I'm just going to put this, uh, and we'll get into that, folks. Don't worry when we uh, when we review the author of this paper. Uh, but but the point that I want to make here is let's just fast forward 28 years later. Again, this is written in 1995. Uh, someone like myself, who's not a shill, I'm not propped up, I'm not promoted. Uh, yeah, I joined Mike Moore in the beginning. Uh, the purpose was to help kind of kick this off. Didn't go as um, I think as Mike has planned or I planned, we had to go in a sort of different direction because Mike was under attack. He was censored. Okay, your reach 
as someone who's truly independent is not going to be very far, especially, and I'm not standing out in the town green with flyers. I used to do that in my 20s, and it was actually quite effective. But right now, you're on the internet. And you can use search engine optimization and you could do some marketing, but you're really not going to break through on a huge level. All right, there's no one that's truly independent that is going to grow to the size of Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or any of this other state-sponsored propaganda media. It's just not going to happen. This is not going to occur. It's impossible because you're fighting against the system within a system that's controlled and owned by the system. As I've said, we're battling technocrats on their own battlefield. They control the Internet. The Internet was created by the government. It's now run by all of these government partners like Amazon Web Services. So you can't beat the system on the system's own battlefield. All right. And that is what this author is getting at here as far as freedom of press goes. Sure, you have the freedom to supposedly say anything, which now you know is not true because they've turned the town square into Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and these other ghettos that are controlled by artificial intelligence algorithms, by artificial intelligence systems that are working in cooperation with the state that's supposedly there to protect your freedom of press, which is a complete and total lie. I mean, the government is there to supposedly protect your constitutional rights, but you always find yourself fighting the government for your supposed constitutional rights. And if you want to learn more about constitutional rights, I recommend that you listen to Legal Man of the Quash because he nails it on every single one of his podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dust to Gold with the Dust to Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dust and Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Pain.tv slash gold. And as you know, ladies and gentlemen, or in case you're just joining us, we are... Reviewing Industrial Society and Its Future, this paper written in 1995. The author just said they actually had to kill people to get people to actually listen to the writings in this paper. And as I said, we're going to get into that once we review the author upon completion of analysis of this paper from 1995. We just got done talking about freedom of the press Ladies and gentlemen, now we will continue. This is paragraph 97. Constitutional rights are useful up to a point, but they do not serve to guarantee much more than what might be called the bourgeois conception of freedom. According to the bourgeois conception, a free man is essentially an element of a social machine and has only a certain set of prescribed and delimited freedoms, freedoms that are designed to serve the needs of the social machine more than those of the individual. 
Thus, the bourgeois free man has economic freedom because that promotes growth and progress. He has freedom of the press because public criticism restrains misbehavior by political leaders. He has a right to a fair trial because imprisonment at the whim of the powerful would be bad for the system. Okay, and you'll see this throughout time, depending on uh, which time frame within history you're looking at. Obviously, rights and freedoms, the way that we were trained to perceive them through the public indoctrination school system, are always these rights that comply within the framework of the system and so that it benefits the system and i can continue to break down what he just said there and add different examples and i don't a hundred percent necessarily agree with what the author is saying there i think it's sort of simplified uh, but i'm not going to do that not right now i think we're going to have a larger discussion in the future on a lot of this goes on to say this was clearly the attitude of simon uh, bolivar To him, people deserved liberty only if they used it to promote progress, progress as conceived by the bourgeois, right? And so if you go back to the late 1800s, looking at the eugenics folks that grew out of the economy movement, uh, the progressive era, these eugenicist economists, uh, they believed you had the freedom to bear children, right? You had the right to do that if you were going to help promote the progress of the system. If you did not, then you would be chemically castrated, right? If you were considered to be feeble-minded or unfit or unemployable. It goes on to say other bourgeois thinkers have taken a similar view of freedom as a mere means to collective ends. Chester C. Tan Quote, Chinese political thoughts in the 20th century, end quote, page 202, explains the philosophy of the Kwamatang leader Hu Han Min. Quote, an individual is granted rights because he is a member of society and his community life requires such rights. By community, who meant the whole society of the nation, end quote. And on page 259, Tan states that according to Carson Chang, Chang Chun Mai, head of the State Socialist Party in China, freedom had to be used in the interest of the state and of the people as a whole. But what kind of freedom does one have if one can use it only as someone else prescribes? And, and that's a lot of what uh, we've seen. Uh, over modern history this is what you're experiencing in your own life folks you have the freedom to go out without a mask as long as you're carrying a vaccine card you have a freedom to own a gun as long as it fits in with all the various rules and regulations and policies and it's registered with the state Right, You have the freedom of speech, as long as that speech complies within our rules and regulations. Okay, And one can say, well, I don't agree with that speech, or that speech would be dangerous. Well, all of a sudden, now we're limiting each other's speech, so do you truly have freedom? 
You can own an old revolver that only has uh, four bullets, but you can't own an AR-15. Well, then do you really have freedom? Is there really a second amendment? Now, because the freedom is defined by the state in whatever uh, form the state is at that given time. And as you see, slowly, the state is trying to take even these perceived constitutional rights away because slowly, those rights are not fitting into the system that we are moving into. So at some point, those rights benefited the system. And now they're not benefiting the system. And there's certain things that were not necessarily a right or they were found to be illegal. I don't know, like marijuana, uh, being a homosexual, whatever. And then over time, those things changed because the change now benefited the state. So they will give two men the right to get married because now all of a sudden that benefits the state. It's not about giving freedom to the individual. It's about giving them freedom on a particular issue in which that issue now benefits the state, the society, the system. All right, do you understand? FC's conception of freedom is not that of Bolivar, Hugh, Chang, or other bourgeois theorists. The trouble with such theorists is that they have made the development and application of social theories their surrogate activity. Consequently, the theories are designed to serve the needs of the theorists more than the needs of any people who may be unlucky enough to live in a society on which the theories are imposed. Okay, and so the other thing I'll point back out to what the author said earlier, I want to point back to this, that within the system all these supposed rights and then you have uh, laws and policies and regulations that then limit those rights uh in past days the so-called state uh the society the engine the machine could not necessarily enforce all of the limitations on your rights but now as we enter further into technocracy we can and this author i think was calling this out back in 95 because we were at the forefront of an acceleration uh, in the advancement of technology that we hadn't seen for quite some time remember the internet was just entering households in 95 all right with aol dial-up and such and now look where we are today Paragraph 98, one more point to be made in this section. It should not be assumed that a person who has enough freedom just because he says he has enough freedom. Freedom is restricted in part by psychological controls of which people are unconscious. And moreover, many people's ideas of what constitutes freedom are governed more by social convention than by their real needs. For example, the author points out, it's likely that many leftists of the over-socialized type would say that most people, including themselves, are socialized too little rather than too much, yet the over-socialized leftist pays a heavy psychological price for his high level of socialization. Now think about the folks that you know. Uh, Maybe it was even you. If you identify as on the right or you came from the right, as did Justin, our cowboy guest, as did Mark, our scripture guest, who came from the right, but now sort of they're woke to all of this stuff. 
uh, people like myself, even you go back to the days of 9-11 and then the Patriot Act rolls out. And some people would have been screaming that this is unconstitutional. They're going to spy on us. And folks would say, listen, we have enough freedom. We have enough freedom. Uh, If you're afraid that the government is spying on your phone calls or your Internet searches, then you must be doing something wrong. So they were saying that because they were fitting themselves into the system, right? They were allowing themselves to be governed more by social convention than by their real needs, which would be, you know, true freedom, right? So we see this playing out. We see people even saying this today, especially through COVID land, the high school theater production. All right. You have enough freedom. You have the freedom to go in the store. You just have to put a mask over your face and suffocate yourself. But you have freedom. You have freedom to go in the store, but you have to follow the dotted line. You have the freedom to go to work. You just have to take a jab in your arm. You see, that's what happens. We're entering a new section here. Some principles of history. Paragraph 99, think of history as being the sum of two components, an erratic component that consists of unpredictable events that follow no discernible pattern, and a regular component that consists of long-term historical trends. Here, we are concerned with the long-term trends. Okay, so we're looking at history here as being the sum of two components. And I'll repeat this, an erratic component that consists of unpredictable events that follow no discernible pattern, and a regular component that consists of long-term historical trends. Okay, we're going to focus on the long-term trends. Paragraph 100, first principle, if a small change is made that affects a long-term historical trend then the effect of that change will almost always be transitory. The trend will soon revert to its original state. The author gives an example. A reform movement designed to clean up political corruption in a society rarely has more than a short-term effect. Sooner or later, the reformers relax and corruption creeps back in. The level of political corruption in any given society tends to remain constant or to change only slowly with the evolution of the society. Normally, a political cleanup will be permanent only if accompanied by widespread social changes. A small change in the society won't be enough. If a small change in a long-term historical trend appears to be permanent... It is only because the change acts in the direction in which the trend is already moving so that the trend is not altered by only pushed a step ahead. But but it should say, but only pushed a step ahead. And so think about that, folks. I, I mean, I can only go off my own uh, life. I fought corruption in New Haven, Connecticut, in the state of Connecticut in general. When I was out there with the organization, Uh, that I founded along with some other folks. And we were on the news, on radio, uh, holding live events, showing up at town council meetings, showing up at the state legislature. We started to see some changes. But as soon as I left, being the head of the organization, I stepped back to get back to my real life, my career in uh, creative endeavors. 
uh, the folks beneath me were not as natural leaders as I was. So the movement began to crumble very quickly. Within a matter of a few months, all of them sort of gave up and went home. And the corruption and the criminality and all of that stuff just came right back. Connecticut is worse than it's ever been. It's just part of that system and it's not going to change you know some there's some sheepdogs who run around and try to change it it changes for the short term if that even if you can make a dent in it and then it goes right back to where it was right so as the author says normally a political cleanup will be permanent only if accompanied by widespread social changes a small change in the society won't be enough now as you know it's uh, basically impossible for us as individuals to change society on any sort of grand scale. It's, it's, it's frankly impossible. But society is continually changing because it's engineered. Okay, the changes are engineered from the top down. They don't come from the bottom up. It goes on to say, paragraph 101, the first principle is almost a tautology. If a trend were not stable with respect to small changes, it would wander at random rather than following a definite direction. In other words, it would not be a long-term trend at all. 102 says, second principle. If a change is made that is sufficiently large to alter permanently a long-term historical trend, then it will alter the society as a whole. In other words, a society is a system in which all parts are interrelated, and you can't permanently change any important part without changing all other parts as well. This is very important. All right, I'm going to go through, we went through the first, this is the second, I'm going to do the third and the fourth, and then we're going to take a short break. Paragraph 103, third principle, if a change is made that is large enough to alter permanently a long-term trend, then the consequences for the society as a whole cannot be predicted in advance, unless various other societies have passed through the same change and all have experienced the same consequences, in which case one can predict on empirical grounds that another society that passes through the same change will be likely to experience similar consequences. And paragraph 104, fourth principle, a new kind of society cannot be designed on paper. That is, you cannot plan out a new form of society in advance, then set it up and expect it to function as it was designed to do. Now, I think the author, and we'll we'll see this momentarily, I think the author is actually referring to, let's say, you and I, trying to set up a new society, or us trying to make change within society. I would argue at the top levels, we are seeing the change is being made. They are planned on paper. We see the documents from Wide Awake Jim coming out of the Bank for International Settlements. We see the papers on smart cities and 15-minute cities and all of this other stuff coming. We see all the original blueprints going back to Technocracy Incorporated in 1919, the 1920s, 1930. But... We do see some of the stuff that the technocrats are trying to move forward with not succeeding because they are planning and sometimes they just can't engineer that change they need in order to change society. But if you remember, 
And I think this is why these guys are successful. One, they're doing it from the top, so they do have the ability to force the change. They do have the ability to engineer people into the change. It was technocracy founder Howard Scott who said, basically, we'll just engineer people into the change by changing, let's say, the technology or the car they're driving. If they want everyone to drive EV cars, they can just stop production on gas-powered cars because they control the market, only put out EV cars, and then you don't have a choice about whether or not you're going to buy an EV car. Now, you and I may hate it, but if my son Willie G grows up and that's the only car, that's all he knows. So sometimes it will take them a full generation to engineer that social change. All right, ladies and gentlemen, think about that. It's complex, but I'm glad we're having this conversation. We have to be realistic about all this. This is not designed to blackpill you. It's designed to help you understand the system we're living in and to understand how it works. And to understand it from the perspective of an author, I believe, who actually had this all figured out a long time ago. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Payne.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks, let's continue here with industrial society and its future. We're on paragraph 105. It says the third and fourth principles result from the complexity of human societies. A change in human behavior will affect the economy of a society and its physical environment. The economy will affect the environment and vice versa. The changes in the economy and the environment will affect human behavior in complex, unpredictable ways and so forth. The network of causes and effects is far too complex to be untangled and understood. That's important. It says the network of causes and effects is far too complex to be untangled and understood. But, but again, written in 95, 28 years later, what does Yuval Noah Harari, the king philosopher of the fourth industrial revolution in the World Economic Forum say, those who control the data will be the gods of the new era. Those who control the data will be the gods of the new era. And why is that so important, folks? Because back in 95, they did not have the ability to track all of us individually, building a digital footprint on every single one of us, effectively creating a digital twin of us that lives in the cloud, lives on their servers, Right, They have the ability to track all the behavior. And so they can constantly monitor behavior. And so as they try to affect, all right, change in human behavior, they can in real time monitor the results. Also in 1995, they did not have everyone, let alone anyone, walking around with the monitoring system in their pocket, in their hand, on their wrist at all times. The internet of bodies, the smartphone, the Fitbit, the iWatch, we're walking around with those. 
constantly interacting with it. And we don't even have to be interacting. It's not that you have to be on Facebook or Twitter doing stuff or on TikTok or YouTube watching stuff or uploading videos. The phone is constantly watching everything and listening to everything. So it's feeding data in at all times. So they do have the ability. Uh, if they orchestrate, let's say, I don't know, the, the situation with the planes, right? all the planes being grounded, they can monitor in real time all of the reactions going on digitally and in your real life when you're not actually or you believe you're interacting with your smart device. It's always monitoring this through your voice, through video, your smart TV is watching everything. All this could be processed as long as they have the computing power. And this is why they're so big on quantum computing, which they talk about at World Economic Forum all the time, that they will have the computing power to monitor this data at all time. So they know how well their mass manipulation campaigns uh, are going on, their psychological warfare campaigns are going on in real time, but they also have the ability to manipulate and change human behavior all the time through the personalized choose-your-own-adventure feedback loops that we are interacting with when we are on Google search, when we are looking at Facebook, when we are looking at Twitter, at TikTok, at YouTube, at Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Because they have the ability to put information in front of you, whether that's generated from real people or whether it's from bots or whether it's an AI algorithm just interacting with you and feeding you information to confirm your biases or drive you in other directions, manipulate you constantly. See, that when the author wrote this, he didn't even see this coming. Paragraph 106, the fifth principle. People do not consciously and rationally choose the form of their society. Societies develop through processes of social evolution that are not under rational human control. Uh, unless you go move to your own homestead, then you sort of control the society in which you're going to live in, which is withdrawing from this current society, which is a manipulated society, a controlled society, an engineered society paragraph 107 the fifth principle is a consequence of the other four paragraph 108 to illustrate by the first principle generally speaking an attempt at social reform either acts in the direction in which the society is developing anyway so that it merely accelerates a change that would have occurred in any case or else it has only a transitory effect so that the society soon slips back into its old groove. To make a lasting change in the direction of development of any important aspect of society, reform is insufficient and revolution is required. A revolution does not necessarily involve an armed uprising or the overthrow of a government. By the second principle, a revolution never changes only one aspect of society. It changes the whole society. And by the third principle, changes occur that were never expected or desired by the revolutionaries. By the fourth principle, when revolutionaries or utopians set up a new kind of society, it never works out as planned. Now, let me point this out to you. We don't know, I don't know, if the author is actually writing this to you and me, if he's pushing folks to revolt against 
the system at the time, the industrial technological society technocracy that he's actually talking about? Or is this a blueprint written for the actual technocrats and the elites who were trying to actually change society? See, when you listen to Yuval Noah Harari, sometimes if you just read his words and you didn't watch him speak and you didn't know the audience he was speaking to, you didn't hear his voice, you didn't get to experience his demeanor, his facial expressions. If you just read the words, sometimes it looks like he's warning us, but he's not warning us. He's actually laying out the blueprints for the elites, for the scientists, for the technologists, for the engineers that are actually enacting this revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution. So if this author is writing to you and me back in 1995, telling us that we will have to have a revolution against the system, we will have to rage against the machine. I don't know. Is he talking to you or me? Or is he talking to the folks that actually wanted to change the system and they can only do it through a revolution? Because what he's talking about fits in perfectly with what we are experiencing and have been experiencing for quite some time. This revolution to drive us from the third industrial era into the fourth industrial era. From a technological society to a full-blown prison planet. With the merger of the physical, biological, and digital worlds. Technocracy and transhumanism meet. I, I just think it's fascinating to think this way, folks. This is the type of stuff that keeps me up at night. Actually, it's Willie G that keeps me up at night, but uh, this stuff used to keep me up at night. It boggles your mind, folks. Paragraph 109. The American Revolution does not provide a counterexample. The American, quote, revolution, end quote, was not a revolution in our sense of the word, but a war of independence followed by a rather far-reaching political reform. The founding fathers did not change the direction of development of American society, nor did they aspire to do so. They only freed the development of American society from the retarding effect of British rule. Their political reform did not change any basic trend, but only pushed American political culture along its natural direction of development. British society, of which American society was an offshoot, had been moving for a long time in the direction of representative democracy. And prior to the War of Independence, the Americans were already practicing a significant degree of representative democracy in the colonial assemblies. The political system established by the Constitution was modeled on the British system and on the colonial assemblies. With major alteration, to be sure, there is no doubt that the Founding Fathers took a very important step. But it was a step along the road that English-speaking world was already traveling. The proof is that Britain and all of its colonies that were populated predominantly by people of British descent ended up with systems of representative democracy, essentially similar to that of the United States. If the founding fathers 
had lost their nerve and declined to sign the Declaration of Independence, our way of life today would not have been significantly different. Maybe we would have had somewhat closer ties to Britain and would have had a parliament and prime minister instead of a congress and president. No big deal. Thus, the American Revolution provides not a counterexample to our principles, but a good illustration of them. I think that's fascinating. If you really think about that, and and again, if you want to dig deeper into issues of the Constitution and the founding, I highly suggest, and and I'm not partners with him, uh, I don't promote him or anything like that, Uh, I happen to be a listener. I would listen to Legal Man over at the podcast, The Quash, because he really dissects this. I would read Lysander Spooner. He goes through a lot of this as well. But this author really is on point with that. Legal Man also explains sort of the, the real founding versus the founding that we were taught in the public indoctrination school system. And I know many people don't want to believe that a lot of that is a fiction and a fantasy, But a lot of the stuff we learned was really cherry-picked, and a lot of it was left out. Uh, But Legal Man has read, uh, as I have and many others have, uh, the writings of a lot of the people we'd call the Founding Fathers, and there is so much left out of the official narrative that many of the folks on the right find themselves to be so nostalgic over. Paragraph 110. Still, one has to use common sense in applying the principles. They are expressed in imprecise language that follows latitude for interpretation and exceptions to them can be found so we present these principles not as in inviolable laws but as rules of thumb or guides to thinking that may provide a partial antidote to naive ideas about the future of society the principles should be borne constantly in mind and whenever one reaches a conclusion uh, that conflicts with them, one should carefully re-examine one's thinking and retain the conclusion only if one has good, solid reasons for doing so. Industrial technological society cannot be reformed. All right, Technocracy cannot be reformed. Uh, that's what this author is saying. Now, if you go back to 95 and look at the state of the industrial technological system technocracy of 1995 and then you look where we are today okay no one has revolted against that system it has only grown all of the pieces of technology that we see today are extensions of and they are what create the culture of technocracy the technocratic society it all goes together. It is only grown. It has only expanded. It has only limited our freedoms and our liberties and our ability to prosper. It has only limited that. I mean, prosper in the sense of a human, not to get money to buy materialistic things. I don't measure freedom and liberty uh, in the context of consumerism. I don't believe that I am free because I can open up my smartphone, click on Amazon Prime, buy a uh, mobile, a crib mobile for Willie G and have it delivered to my house in uh, 24 hours. I, I don't see that as freedom. I see that as perceived convenience that has trapped me into a system of slavery. 
Because over time, I have seen the people that used to make wooden toys and things like this for children who owned a little shop in the center of town that I could go down and buy something from that man who created it with his own hands. I see that gone. I see that system more as a system of freedom and human autonomy than I do buying something from Jeff Bezos and Amazon who control over 50% of the uh, retail and distributor supply chain. I don't see that as freedom. I see that as me being locked into a system of slavery uh, where I have to rely on that. Why? Because when they decide that they're going to clamp down and not let you buy anything with your central bank digital currency tokens, Amazon is going to be the first one who limits what you can buy. They're already in partnership with the government. They're in partnership with the governments around the world. They house over 50% of the internet. I mean, that we know of, that they admit to. So they are the consolidation of the production of goods and the distribution of those goods and services. That's what this is about. It's consolidation. So as the author points out back in 95, that technocracy cannot be reformed. It would have to be completely destroyed. And as you see, it wasn't destroyed, and look how big it is today. Look at their plans for 2030, and look at their plans for 2050. And this is why I say, even if you had a seat at the table, you cannot sit there and debate these folks and say, well, we can still have Amazon, but Amazon isn't allowed to do this. Or we can still have artificial intelligence, but it can't be used to manipulate us. Or we can still have brain chips going into people's heads, but it it, it can only cure their paralysis, but it can't manipulate them. No, I mean, how can you reform a system like that? Think about that, folks. Think about that. I'm going to take a short break. My name is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. And there's a big point I want to make. I I hope I remember to do it at the end of this segment. I don't want to put it in right now, but it was something I was just thinking about over the break, folks over the break all right let's continue here with industrial society in its future we're on paragraph 111 uh and remember we just ended by the author saying industrial technological society that's technocracy cannot be reformed folks it can't be reformed and that's what we'll talk about at the end of this segment here paragraph 111 the foregoing principles help to show how hopelessly difficult it would be to reform the industrial system in such a way to prevent it from progressively narrowing our sphere of freedom. There has been a consistent tendency, going back at least to the Industrial Revolution, for technology to strengthen the system at a high cost in individual freedom and local autonomy. Think about that, how true that is. He says, there has been a consistent tendency going back at least to the Industrial Revolution for technology to strengthen the system 
at a high cost in individual freedom and local autonomy. See, the system continues to get stronger, more centralized, right? And it sucks up our individual freedom and autonomy at the local level and in our individual lives. Uh, Think about that. It's very important, folks. It's very important because this is so true. Hence, any change designed to protect freedom from technology would be contrary to a fundamental trend in the development of our society. So on point. Consequently, such a change either would be a transitory one, soon swamped by the tide of history, or, if large enough to be permanent, would alter the nature of our whole society. This is by the first and second principles. Moreover, since society would be altered in a way that could not be predicted in advance, which is the third principle, there would be great risk. Changes large enough to make a lasting difference in favor of freedom would not be initiated because it would be realized that they would gravely disrupt the system. So any attempts at reform would be too timid to be effective. Even if changes large enough to make a lasting difference were initiated, they would be retracted when their disruptive effects became apparent. Thus, permanent changes in favor of freedom could be brought about only by persons prepared to accept radical, dangerous, and unpredictable alteration of the entire system. In other words, by revolutionaries, not reformers. Now, I I just want to point out here, okay, it is my belief, whether it be in 1995 or today, and I've thought through this, I spent hundreds of hours of my life racking my brain through everything we've covered here in 132 episodes to having read this paper multiple times throughout my life, putting this in context to all the other stuff I've studied, whether it be Marxism, progressivism, leftism, uh, everything I've studied in my life. And now the last uh, couple years really studying technocracy in depth, understanding the culture, sort of the, the, the it's not even an ideology, it's really a culture. Uh, and it's and it's been ingrained inside us now, and just watching people be brainwashed and mind controlled and mind hacked, uh, and walked right into this, right into this trap. I do not believe. I'm being honest with you. I do not believe there is going to be a revolution, not anytime soon, anyway, that is going to overthrow the culture of technocracy because I believe it is actually ingrained inside the majority of people today. And if you're listening to this show, you're probably point, uh, part of the point zero 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 one percent of people that even understand this. I've been studying it for a long time, and I frankly don't fully understand it. So, People would have to understand it, the history of it, the ideas that go behind it in order to revolt against it. So no one can actually revolt against it. Plus the folks that understand it, are we prepared to revolt against a system that the majority of people are happy and comfortable living inside of? Now, they may be happier being free, but they at least perceive that they're happy inside of this system let alone trying to get people to understand what it would be like to actually step outside of 
this system of technocracy. So I do not believe there will be a revolution to overthrow or overcome technocracy, to destroy it, and to usher us into some new freedom-based society, going back to some primitive society, because there aren't enough people that are ever going to do that. And you're not going to get people to ever agree on an idea in order to have a meaningful revolution anyway. But I think the true revolutionary uh, lives inside of you to revolt against the system by withdrawing from the system and doing it in a very smart way, doing it in a calculated way, doing it in a way that it's not going to end up hurting your family, either in the short term or the long term. Because if you fully understand the ramifications of withdrawing from the system, you can do it in a way that is actually going to be a benefit to yourself and your family. So I don't believe there's ever going to be uh, some great awakening and everyone is going to revolt against the system. I don't see people taking their uh, internet, taking it out of their house, removing their uh, smart devices. I I just don't see that happening in mass. Uh, Nor, if you truly believe in freedom, if you actually believe in freedom, you cannot try to force other people out of a system which they apparently want to live inside. You know, if they want to put the plug into the back of their head and live inside the matrix, who am I to tell them they're not allowed to do that? I just want to be able to withdraw from the system and live my life, my life the way that I see fit. I don't want them coming and trying to jam the matrix plug, the cable back into my head. You know, that's all I'm really fighting against, our autonomy to be able to leave the system. All right, paragraph 112. People anxious to rescue freedom without sacrificing the supposed benefits of technology will suggest naive schemes for some new form of society that would reconcile freedom with technology. Okay, this is important because this would be uh, critiquing me, right? Living one foot in the matrix and one foot out of the matrix. Now, the reason why I present that, okay, to you folks, I did since episode one, is because that would seem to be a rational approach to most people that are not willing to completely cut the cord, cut their leash, turn off the electricity, you know, and cook out on a fire. Okay, if I started off my show that way, I don't think anyone would have listened. But this author critiques my idea of living one foot in the matrix and one foot out of the matrix. If I had the ability to snap my fingers and live completely off the grid, would I do it? Uh, I think I would because it is... I do not believe that technology and humanity can actually coexist. I don't believe they can. I've thought it through. I think that the direction we're moving in proves that technology will eventually engulf humanity and destroy it. All right, so let me reread that and we'll continue. People anxious to rescue freedom without sacrificing the supposed benefits of technology will suggest naive schemes for some new form of society that would reconcile freedom with technology. Apart from the fact that people who make such suggestions seldom propose any practical means by which the new form of society could be set up in the first place, it follows from the fourth principle that even if the new form of society could be once established, 
it either would collapse or would give results very different from those expected. So this would be, for instance, going out and creating uh, our own subdivision, our own new county where we farm and we also have access to technology, saying that that kind of a planned society wouldn't work. And I think what would happen, I've thought about it before, is, is immediately the technology would start coming in and destroying it. Now, I'm not... Um, Oppose to this because their cycle of civilization, cycle of society, it's just like a human. They're born, they live, they die. So if we broke away right now and formed an Amish community, eventually technology would creep in because it's all around us. It's all outside of that system, that community. And I've heard stories now. I know the Amish actually are starting to adopt some technology uh, in some of the areas inside the Amish communities, even in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania. So you're seeing it creep in. So let's say you reduce the technology in this new community by 80%. So you're starting with 20% of what you're living with today. It might take a generation or two or three to come back. So I don't think it's a horrible idea to try to develop a society like that because you're bringing yourself back closer to freedom. Are you going to have 100% freedom? No. But if you have 60% more freedom than you do today, that's not that bad of an idea. All right, that's how I see it. Uh, I, I said to you before, if you're going to debate folks that are extremists, that want full-blown technocracy, transhumanism, and engineer humans out of existence, you have to debate based on the extreme, which is no technology at all. But in reality, if you're going to be rational and realistic, I think you have in your mind, your plan, your goals is some sort of a middle ground that actually pulls you out of the system. You live with maybe some elements of the system of which you raise your kids and grandkids to know about and the reasons why you're using it as a tool. Over time, that community will begin to crumble and be engulfed by technology, but it won't happen as fast as it's happening around us today, living inside the actual matrix. Paragraph 113, so even on very general grounds, it seems highly improbable that any way of changing society could be found that would reconcile freedom with modern technology. In the next few sections, we will give more specific reasons for concluding that freedom and technological progress are incompatible. And that's exactly what I have talked about, folks. I have talked about on this show. That technology, and I don't just look at it as freedom, I look at it as humanity. Technology and humanity cannot coexist in harmony. It's evidenced uh, by what's going on today. And as we started out, in the, in the middle of this section, he says industrial technological society cannot be reformed, meaning technocracy cannot be reformed. What's happening today where you're watching technology actually be used against humanity to limit humanity, eventually engineer humanity out of existence, either technology was created for the very purpose of doing what it's doing or technology naturally grows towards what it's doing. So you would have to believe that everything we're witnessing is an unintended consequence of technology. But to be 100% honest with you, I actually believe that everything we're witnessing is an intended consequence of technology. I don't actually believe that there's technologies that were developed that were not for the purpose of 
limiting human's involvement in whatever that technology is actually replacing. It's complicated. It's a nuanced discussion. I think it's uh, difficult for most to absorb this. I'm still a student of this, folks. I don't think I'll ever crack the code, but this is a very important paper. Uh, This is a very important discussion for those of you who feel like something is wrong. You're trying to understand this. You want to figure out how to escape this system. Well, you need to have this discussion here at the Dust and Gold Standard, and you need to have this discussion with yourself and then eventually with your spouse, with your children, with your loved ones. Don't go seem crazy, folks. Think this stuff through. Think about if you truly want to exit the system, if you're going to you know, continue to live in the system, if you're going to withdraw somewhat from the system. There are many things you can do, and we're going to continue to work through that here at the Dustin Gold Standard. Folks, leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts along with a comment. Think about joining pain.tv slash gold for less than $9 a month. And feel free to leave us a donation. We'd really appreciate it. We work hard over here to bring you this show. That's donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. Until tomorrow, we'll continue with Industrial Society and its future, and then we have some guests coming up over the weekend. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Have a great evening. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold.